Hello there, everybody in podcast land. Uh, you're listening to the Night Lamp Podcast with me. I'm Stefan Friedrich. And me, Adela Holmes. Hi. Hello to you all. Um, well, once again, we sit here to discuss um, a whole lot of um, issues and themes that we've come across um, and to catch up. It's been a really lovely, beautiful, sunny day in Victoria. For those of you listening in Queensland, we do get nice days. Occasionally. <laughs> Occasionally. Let, let's be honest, Stefan. Yeah, yeah, I know. But now we're coming into summer. It means that we get more time on the bike. Mm, or the balcony. Or the balcony, <laughs> as I'm sure that you enjoy your cups of tea. I do. On the balcony. I do. Can I come over and have a cup of tea? You on may your come over and have a cup of tea with a sugar cube yes, on my please. balcony at yes, any please. time, Stefan. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so much has been happening. Uh, you've just you've been uh, in far north Queensland once again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been actually in Tasmania. Yeah, that's right. Um, which was uh, really good. I was delivering some training uh, actually on behalf of Lighthouse Foundation, which was on behalf of Centre for Excellence, which is interesting. Um, and uh, last night I was on the Mornington Peninsula that's delivering right. some training for a group of foster carers, um, which I really, really enjoyed. We get around. Yes, we do. <laughs> we certainly do, and we love it. Um, well, it's been a busy uh, month, I guess, in Australia for politics, and can we please not talk about federal politics? Yeah, let's not. It's getting plenty of airplay <laughs> elsewhere. <laughs> but I'll tell you what I would like to talk about, which could be slightly political, but doesn't get the airplay. Um, and you and I were discussing an article that came out in The Age, and I think we made some commentary on our Facebook page. Yes. Um, And the article was on The Age. I'll just uh, bring it up and and have a look at it, because I've got it here ready. Um, And it was titled, Kids Who Leave State Care at Risk of Homelessness, says a study, uh, um, a new bit of research that came out. Now, that's no surprise to any of us, is it? Mm. No surprise to any of us who work in the sector. No, not, not at all. But, I mean, I thought it was good that this yeah. is coming to the public realm. And, um, you, you know, I'll, I'll read this line from it, which I think was possibly um, the, the, you know, the most astounding piece of data, which said that more than half of all young people who leave state care end up homeless within one year and without access to support that a research project has shown. Um, you know, quite uh, astounding. The, the research was done by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare um, in which they they got this finding. Now, we know that there's a whole range of systemic factors involved in this. I mean, the fact that other kids are leaving the care of their families and going into independent living do usually have continued support of their parent. Mm. So I guess on one hand you have uh, kids who get to the age of 18 and no longer under state care. Mm. There's a whole lot of systemic issues as to why they come homeless. I mean, it it's obviously goes more than that. Why are they not internally equipped mm. 
as well during Indeed. that time. What are we doing yeah. beforehand to ensure that they're not going to be home? And I think that the answer... Well, there's a couple of things that this makes me think about. Mm. One is the answer to the problem that that poses yeah. is not to be found in improving homeless services. No, now, well, that's where people yeah. will look. But the answer to the problem lies in improving the services that the children get right up to that point. Because that's what's going to build their internal capacity. As it does for all of us, we build our internal capacities to Mm. become independent adults. So in a way, when I saw that article, it had major reflections for me about the article, the report that was released about three weeks before that. Uh, by the Commission for Children and Young People in Victoria, again, which was pretty damning, uh, about the state of residential care in Victoria. So you put these two fairly large pieces of information together, and here we are five weeks down the track, Mm -hmm. about... What have we heard now? What's happened? I haven't heard any outrage in the community that the group of the most vulnerable children in this state are being treated in this way. What were they, just for the sake of our listeners, what were the main points or the most striking points about the Commissioner's report that you saw? Well, I suppose the thing that really struck very, very strongly was the issues around the mix of clients placed together. Now, the major focus of the report, or what triggered it, was uh, around issues of sexual abuse, both between residents and between people in the community Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. exploit those vulnerable children who live in those homes. Um, Of course, a range of other issues emerged during the collection by the Commission of submissions from the sector. But that that was the initial focus. And they didn't actually fare too well in that regard. And, of course, one of the major issues about mix, client mix, is the way in which children are placed. And that's been problematic for a long time in terms of the lack of capacity within the system to engage in any prior assessment Mm. so that children who become needing out-of-home care in a residential setting kind of just fall into wherever there's a bed vacant, whether the mix is good or not. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is a problem because the quality of a residential care program or a foster care program also has to take into account Mm. a system that is hard-pressed just to place Exactly. To, to place children. Exactly. Uh, I think that that is something that's never... I mean, we see that problem all over the country. Hmm. We see that problem everywhere we go to train. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We see that problem um, actually described by many of the staff who work with children in residential care on a very regular basis. And, of course, one of the other factors would be the resourcing, which is usually in a non-therapeutic residential house for four children to one staff member. Mm, mm. And you have to ask yourself, how can it be possible 
how can there even be an, any imagining that it could be possible to care for four very traumatised children and young people with one person having to manage all of the variables that and are going I, on. And I mean, I life. understand, you and I understand that <laughs> there are, you know, economic reasons of for course. this. That we, you know, that people in state government will say, well, we don't have the money to be able to resource every home in this way. However, there is still, you know, we've talked about this before in podcasts, there is plenty of research that shows that the return on a higher investment in care is enormous. And what was that report that came from the UK? From from the UK, uh, I will find it. A false economy, it was yes, called. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, and that was, I think, put together by an accounting mm-hmm. firm. Yep. Uh, looking at the British system. Yeah. Uh, and it maintained, I think that, I'm not sure these figures are correct, but I think they are, that for every four pounds sterling spent, it generated six pounds Actually, of I saving. recall it being for every one additional pound. Oh, well, there is a return, there is a social, economic yeah. return of six pounds. So yeah. it's actually sixfold. Mm. So I think we, we need to start urging... Mm. Uh, our, you know, uh, politicians to actually, we, we need to urge them to consider mm. that this is actually an investment in the in the future social economy. It's a massive investment. And, and one of, I think, the problems in the community is that because of the closed nature of our systems, which absolutely understandable, we want to protect the identities of children who've been traumatised yeah. and privacy laws are very focused on doing that for very good reasons. But one of the unintended consequences of that is that people can't be shocked by the circumstances of these children's lives because they're not permitted to know. Mm. Uh, I know. You know, Stefan, and many of our listeners will know. Mm -hmm. Mm. And if the community knew... I think that they would be as shocked as we are. But, of course, they don't. I think so. I think so. And And also, if they knew things like, you know, just before you mentioned Mm non-therapeutic, some of our listeners won't know what therapeutic care is. I Mm. mean, for a lot of people, the word therapeutic means, uh, uh, you know, aromatherapy and... Mm. and, uh, Maybe some crystal healing, or <laughs> no, that's you know, definitely or not what therapeutic is. You know, so what? What it, can you? Well, yeah, I think for the sake of our yeah, listeners, let's maybe clarify. Yes, it's what do we mean by idea. therapeutic residential care, and what do we actually mean by non-therapeutic residential okay. care? So, therapeutic residential care was an basically an initiative in this country mm-hmm. that started in the early two thousands. When residential care was first outsourced into the community sector, there were no models of care suggested and agencies were basically left to their own devices to determine how they cared for the children that they tended to care for. So within within a couple of years, the absence of a model of care became very obvious and there were some real problems. And that's not my opinion, this is a matter of fact, because uh, as a result of those problems, the Department of Human Services at the time actually commissioned a report 
that report was undertaken by three very prominent clinicians and academics uh, and resulted in uh, a report that was published in 1999 called When Care is Not Enough. In that report, they talked about the importance of this newly emerging technology that was coming from overseas, which was making sense of the very troubled presentations of children who'd experienced abuse and neglect within the context of neuroscience. So it actually was beginning to emerge what we now know and what uh, theorists and clinicians like Bruce Perry talk about with us all the time, uh, is that abuse and neglect actually have a neurobiological impact. So they shape children's brains. So basically therapeutic care is an approach that is designed utilising that knowledge to actually assist children who suffer the traumatic impacts of abuse and neglect to recover. So in other words, I mean, I, the title itself, when mm. care is not enough, mm. actually means mm. that these children need more than a comfy bed. Exactly. And a they, meal. They need, right. more than, uh, they need more than love, yeah, in fact. Yeah, they actually need some <coughs> intentional yes. therapeutic intervention, exactly. something to assist them to heal yep. from what we now know is developmental trauma. That is correct. Mm. And this was the very beginning of this knowledge. And in subsequent years, like the years probably between 2000 and about 2002, there was a lot of activity within the Department of Human Services, a lot of uh, working groups of which I was a member, and that resulted in a number of initiatives. One of those initiatives, which was grounded in the understandings of neuroscience, was to flagship a therapeutic residential care setting. And that became Hurstbridge Farm Therapeutic Care Program. Uh, I had the very great privilege of being asked from my position at Take Two to do the research, the reading, and the putting together of a proposed model mm -hmm. that could yeah. be utilised in that setting, which I did. Well, you authored that. I authored it. And, um, I, mind you, I must say I co-authored it with a, a really excellent uh, project officer who was working with me on the um, more systematic mm -hmm. elements of it. Uh, but all of the work around the model development, certainly I authored. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we know that I then went on to be the founding manager of Hurstbridge Farm for its first three years. Yeah. Uh, now... Because we were getting very promising results with the six or seven young people who came at the beginning of the farm's whole life, um, there were moves to then broaden that and to invite members of the community services sector to tender for pilots. And in fact, 12 other agencies yeah. tendered for pilots and ran them. And these pilot programs, these additional programs, which mm. were operated by other agencies, yes. were actually uh, to be based or grounded on the principles which the you, you put together for Hurstbridge oh, Farm. Well, Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, yeah. And what happened was, Stefan, that um, 
there were project workers within the head office of DHS who um, I gave the essential elements of the model to, and they put together a document that was called the essential elements document, upon which the other agencies based their submissions. And and they they built that on that. So we knew that, you know, at least they were operating within those... On the same premises. Um, And all of those pilots, including Hurstbridge, were evaluated by a company called Verso. Can can I just ask, before you talk about Hmm. the way that they're evaluating, because before you mentioned... And I'm, I'm trying to be clear for our listeners yes. because I, I don't want to use language that they might not know. Mm. So they, you just described therapeutic care, mm. but before you mentioned non-therapeutic care. Mm. So what do we, when we're saying non-therapeutic care, what does that mean? Well, um, What is that? And where, probably, where is it? Yeah, uh, it's every bed in the state, which would be in the hundreds, mm-hmm. that is not funded. at the level of therapeutic care. And, of course, it's important to say that whilst there are are a number of elements of care that you can do without any additional resources, Mm -hmm. how you think about children, how you talk to children, all of those things don't cost necessarily cost money. Where the additional resources are really critical is in the capacity of the setting to provide an intensity that is what's required to change the neurobiology of a child. Yeah, and of course when we were at Hurstbridge Farm, and I was there as your assistant manager, I suppose, or the Mm. client care manager, we had to apply, and I, I know that we had to because you were so adamant about it, and uh, it was never annoying. <laughs> I think it was. You were so <laughs> adamant that we were to apply. I remember, mm. you know, when I put a roster together, mm. you always ensured that I was applying yeah, the theory, the, the yep. theory around yep. developmental trauma That's and right. what the children were going through. Yep. We had to apply that to the way that we've rostered, yep. to the way we budgeted things, Absolutely. to the way we set rooms up, yep. to the way we planned everything. Yes, right? it is the entire environment. It's not so. What we're saying is that mm. it's not just a therapeutic conversation. No. A therapeutic conversation is an important part of it. It's a very key part. But it's key everything yeah. that we did. It is everything. Yeah, the way that yeah. we recruited, the mm. way that we ran our day, mm. the way you and I had our manager's office yeah. set up. Exactly. Where the manager's offices were set up yeah. so that children could actually still yeah. access us. And in fact, one of the key elements of difference in the pilots that mm-hmm. were set up was around no longer having offices that the staff sat in and viewed the children through a window of. That was a very key element. Um, And the houses needed to be uh, warm and cosy and well-appointed and homely and damage. And my golly, there was frequent damage because Mm -hmm. we have to understand, and I'm sure our listeners understand, that many children who live with the impacts of trauma become very dysregulated very easily. And it is very common that there is damage that occurs, but it has to be fixed immediately. If there's damage in a house which is non-therapeutic, as you say, or not resource for it, firstly, they may not have the resources to fix it. But the other thing is they might be 
um, operating from an old paradigm that mm. says, well, this is the consequence. Mm. You've now damaged something mm. and now that's, that's going to be damaged. or well, that doesn't mm. work anymore. Mm. However, because we apply the theory, we know that that approach won't work. No. And so we had to be resourced to ensure that we're able to repair anything mm. as we mm. needed to. Right? But notwithstanding all of that, which, which is that they are all really important elements and yeah. it makes it sound like that it must cost thousands and thousands exactly, and yeah. thousands, yeah. it actually doesn't. No. Uh, because I, I, these are probably old figures, but it's somewhere in the region of an additional maybe $70,000 mm-hmm. to the highest level of residential care. Now, they may be old figures, but it will be around there. So this is not... I mean, yes, it is a substantial amount of money, but it is not what people might fear it would be. But going back to the first part of our conversation, that that $70,000 that we're putting in now, Now, for which we're going to have a $420,000 return to the community. Exactly. Right? If if we we go... uh, On that. If we we go on the premise of that report. Indeed. Um, So, all right, I just wanted to clarify that. So that's a a clarification. Yeah. And... um, I think it's important to say that the Verso report, for people who haven't read it, it is out there. In fact, I think it's on the DHS website. Yeah, so um, if you were just to Google Verso evaluation... Of TRC uh, report, uh, and it was completed in 2011, I'm sure that most people would find it without too much difficulty. So what, describe the report. What was the report? It was an evaluation. It was an evaluation. It was a very thorough evaluation of all the pilots. Um, and again, in a nutshell, what it showed absolutely conclusively was that that model of therapeutic care produced significant improvements in well, all domains of functioning that were actually uh, designated to be evaluated. So It's actually remarkable when you look at the report and you look at the graphs. Now, the report also did a comparison with non-therapeutic residential care. Yeah, it did. And, um, And that was actually quite concerning, really, in terms of the fact that in a comparison group, which I think had about 20 children and young people yeah. in it, uh, in beds that were not designated therapeutic mm-hmm. and not funded at that level uh, and run in the traditional way, uh, they either stayed the same in their functioning across all the same domains uh, or actually got worse. It's pretty concerning mm-hmm. when a study on the very programs that we're operating here in Victoria actually shows evidence that at very best we can hope to not do harm. Mm. Is it, you know, it, mm. that's, that's a massive concern. So yeah, yeah. obviously this report is important and should still be important mm. now. Mm. Um, so the, to, to what extent... Do we now refer to the report? Like, to what extent do we use it? Well, it's a bit hard for me to answer that because I am not directly involved in the development of the sector as I was back then. Mm -hmm. Uh, All I can say is that I don't see any evidence of it. I see no evidence of mention 
of that report. And in fact, in the uh, the report of the Cummins inquiry. What was the Cummins inquiry? The Cummins inquiry was a, a very large inquiry into basically uh, across the child protection system. So it didn't just talk about residential care, it talked about every facet of the child protection system. Uh, and of course, out of home care is one facet of the many facets But the involved. Cummins report came after the evaluation, right? The Cummins report was actually occurring, as I recall, both while the evaluation, like during the time that the evaluation was completed mm. and after. But it was released after? It was published in about February, January or February 2012. Right, right. So um, for some reason, and I'm not sure what that reason was... It doesn't appear, the Verso report doesn't appear in the extensive list of references mm. of the Cummins mm. inquiry. Well, that's concerning. That's concerning. I don't know what is the reason for that. It's a question I have. Uh, since that time, certainly, DHHS talks about how they value the existing model of therapeutic care that they run. In fact, in some recent submission details mm -hmm. for some uh, tenders that were put out last year, they actually directly state that the model is a good one. Yeah. They say yeah. they um, have every intention to continue expanding it and that the model is a good one. I can only assume that they're talking about the model that the Verso report evaluated. Mm -hmm. I can't be certain of that. Well, there's, are there any others? There are no other evaluations. Mm -hmm. They're not to the best of my knowledge. So what I find, uh, I mean, you know, the, it, with regards to that, I imagine you're talking about there was, um, well, it was quite public, there was a call out for submissions to, for service providers to tender? Yes, for about 16 more beds, I think. Yeah, yeah, yes. for um, a new lot of mm. intentionally therapeutic care mm models. Mm. Um, I believe that's now been retracted, that's, that funding's not available. I, I believe like that. that's so, and I believe that the uh, stated reason has been that um, in the wake of the Commission's report, what the Department wants to do is look at how they can improve what are the existing circumstances uh, and not be commissioning anything new and look at different new options. I don't know what those different new options but might I'm, be. But, I mean, I'm concerned and I'm trying to be civil when I say I'm concerned that um, here we've got the evidence for what works and it's not being mentioned and we're not going to do it. Well, I think what... What concerns me is something even a little more than that because here we have a situation where a report has come out from the Commission. The Commission says that residential care that is not therapeutic is in a parlous state. Therapeutic residential care, the, the small amount of beds that still exist, which would number somewhere around, I'm guessing, 60 or 70, mm -hmm. It could be a little more than that, but it wouldn't be much more than that. So those 
are not implicated in the Commission's report. They are not implicated at all. What the Commission is writing about is the beds, the remaining beds across the state that are not operating in a therapeutic way. So we're, I mean, we haven't, you know, this hasn't been released in a, you know, in a formal way that this is the reason for it, but it no. seems to us that we've heard that this is the reason stated. Mm. Um, it seems inexplicable to me that you would stop the rollout of something that has been evaluated to be successful in improving the lives of children yeah. in order to have a look at how you could improve something which has clearly been evaluated and more recently reviewed as being not providing healing input for children. Uh, it's inexplicable to me. I, I do not understand it. I guess the, 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 the other big concern is, uh, there is that the longer that we try to reinvent a new will, the longer uh, children who could have those therapeutic services uh, will not get them. Will not get them, will not get the benefit of them. And I think this moves into a, a, a new realm of uh, responsibility because it is now known, well, since the Verso evaluation has been completed, it has been known that beds that are not resourced at therapeutic level are either doing, making no difference or harming children. And the Commission's report tends to support that. And interestingly, I mean, we know that the model works. The model continues to work no matter where we do it. Mm. Look at the program that we partner with, um, with Alternate Care in, in far north Queensland. Mm. You know, the results that it has shown over the years mm. with regards to, it, the, to their mm. therapeutic uh, residential and foster care yep. program is just remarkable mm. what they are achieving there. Um, just absolutely remarkable, but it makes sense. If you look yeah. at the theory, it absolutely. makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. We are using in those settings the same principles of yeah. theory. Yeah. The same principles of theory as expounded by Bruce Perry. Dan Hughes and other theorists who understand the neurobiological impact of trauma, developmental trauma. So where you use it with that client group, it works. And in fact, it works almost remarkably so, as you say. You know, there are some times where uh, I'm consulting with uh, an agency and I suggest, well, if you do this and that and, you know, tweak this and tweak that. And the, re the results, I go back two weeks later for another consult and they say, oh, we did this and we did that and things have completely settled down. And sometimes I go, oh, <laughs> I kind of exceed my own expectations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course... We're always surprised. The but reason, yeah, it's it should, we shouldn't be surprised, mm. because the reason is grounded in solid neurobiological theory. It is. It's not ideology. It's you not can't ideology. Just not agree with it. I it's... didn't make it up. You didn't make <laughs> no, it up. No. It's just using the theory that's out there. Generous people like Bruce Perry and Dan Hughes who... Uh, do this work, Vanderkolk and his associates who've been trying to get 
developmental trauma disorder into the DSM-5 as a new diagnostic category. These are good, generous people who understand the needs of these children. And that's all we're doing. And the theory is sound and it works. We've got it. I think it's time for people to say, right, it, let's do what works. We know how to apply it. The, the difficulty is if the community, and, and I, I, re, I'll, I'll, I, I guess I'm repeating myself, Stefan, but if the community knew this, there would be uproar. But we can't talk about it because we can't talk about kids' lives. No. Because no. that would be improper. No. But I sit down and I'm kind of bursting <laughs> because I'm thinking this is wrong. But you know what I would like the community to know and what I want our listeners to know mm. is that we can show them. If you really want to see data, come and see us. Come and visit us. I'll, I'll show you the data that we've got from our own programs. I'll talk you through the Verso report through someone else's evaluation and I'll show you the evidence that for all the talk and all the wondering and all the newspaper articles about stuff that isn't working and all the conferences that we have where we ask ourselves, what should we do? You, you know what? We, I want the community to know we know, we know what to do. We know what to do. <laughs> when, when I say we, the sector, we, yes, the knowledge is out it's there. It's there. It's right? not ours. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's ours. And more than anything else, Stefan, it belongs to those children. And, they, and they're it, not getting it. It's their it. right. It is their right, and they're not getting it. And that, for me, is pretty awful and pretty inexplicable. I think the best that we can do right now is ensure that our listeners are aware. Mm. Look, look at these things. Have a look at the remarkable evidence mm. And what the Verso report actually exposes. It exposes something really remarkable, which is this fact. People can get better. That these children can get Absolutely. better. And, and something else that I think is worthwhile saying, because it is often looked at as a solution, is you know people say, oh, well, residential care is bad, uh, therefore we should place all children in home-based settings. Now... I understand the ideology around that and I also understand the economy around that. But it's a false economy because there, in my opinion and in the opinion of other people, will always be a group of children who cannot prosper in home-based settings. They are too emotionally intimate. Not yet. Well, not yet. Yeah, yeah. Not yet. They but can if we, if we do if something we right. If we shape it correctly. But if we do something yeah. right, they will be able to. Yeah. But the problem it, is we miss that step. Ab- absolutely. And one of the... Well, in 2005, again, the knowledge is out there because two researchers in South Australia did a study of children in home-based care and very clearly that study showed that children of the ilk who find themselves in residential care settings. These are children who really uh, show very high levels of behavioural disturbance and clinical levels of distress because of their experience of abuse and neglect. Those children 
in their research were shown absolutely conclusively to not be able to prosper from home-based care. In fact, and I will quote this because I think it's important for people to know, in their two-year study, 50 of the most disturbed children who were considered to be disruptive in foster care had actually experienced, over the two-year period of their study, had experienced upwards of 40 placements each. And they described that group as being homeless in care. Well, they are, and it seems to me to is be... Is that what a, we want for yeah, our Yeah, and there's a bit of an illusion. Mm. We think this is the right thing, so mm. we'll keep mm. pushing it. Yeah. Rather, what day. if those children mm. in that report, what if those children could have access to mm. properly yeah. designed mm. therapeutic mm. residential care mm. so that they could heal, mm. so that they could then go into one yes. home-based yeah. care placement rather work. than 40? Yeah. That's Imagine right. that. Yeah. It's the wrong way around. So I, I use that statistic a lot when I'm talking because it's very telling. Mm. And it's in our country. It's not some research that was done overseas in another setting. Done in our country in South Australia. And we've known that since 2005. But for some reason, we continue to do things the other way around and children fail up the system from multiple home-based care placements into residential care. So what happens then is that you end up with a state that becomes um, o overwhelmed yep. with the symptoms of what has happened exactly. and what, what we have yep. actually done or failed to do. Mm. And so then we have to resource yep. the tertiary end. We have to resource exactly. homelessness yep. and justice yep. services, correctional services mm. and so forth. So if we really want, if we're really serious about helping children and we're really serious about using the neuroscience that's out there, we would do things very differently. And would it cost more? Oh, yes. It would, would it cost more in at the, the beginning? Term. Would it cost more in the long term? No. Well, we all know how much a prison sentence costs. Mm. We all know the, the, the economic burden of the mental health system mm. um, and so on and so on mm. and so on and the intergenerational costs yeah. of trauma. And putting all of that money aside, which, of course, is very important, the human cost. Again, I come back to the human cost. And again, the human cost, often people don't see. This is when they see it, when this one of these children does something very violent. Mm -hmm. And we know from recent events in this state that people who have committed very serious offences against people have histories of child abuse. The link between unresolved childhood trauma resulting from abuse and neglect is very clear. It's pretty direct. It's very direct. So this is when the community will be up in arms. If the community knew what we could do now at an early stage for those children, they'd be even more up in arms. They, they would, we would do it. We, <laughs> we would, would do it. it. Because we know we there's two it. things we've talked about. One yeah. is, well, it's an investment. Mm. You know, the, the, the cost is, an, is enormous. But mm. you know what, Al? It, 
it's our ethical obligation. They are our children. Hmm. These, you know, these are our yeah. children. They are our children. Would you not do anything for your own children? Yeah. They are our children in a way because they don't have a voice. And they're our children because, in fact, their parents are traumatised individuals. And they often don't have a voice. So I say, you know, someone might say to me, well, who, who appointed you? the spokesperson for these children? And my answer would be, I did. I think that's a good point for us to finish off. Thank you, Adela. Oh, I think that was a very, very stirring conversation, It, it was stirring. It and, was really, really stirring. Yeah. And material that I've been concerned about for a very long time. Well, Let's hope I, we can see some change. Fair to say that we probably we're unlikely to stop here in saying what we need to say. Absolutely, because it's too important. It's too important for the lives of those children. Well, thanks again for the chat. Thank you, Stefan. I think it's time for us to get out and enjoy some sunshine after that. Okay, and again, as we always say at the end of a podcast, always happy to hear people's comments. Agree, not agree, we're not, we're not fussed. We are happy to have the debate. We love a good debate, we love comments, and we'd love to hear your feedback. Mm. So please let us know. Um, jump on our website, nightlamp.org, or g get on our Facebook page um, and, uh, and let us know what you think. Okay, bye-bye. See you later.